Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is my brother Alex. Alex, what do I always say? Uh, I don't know. I say you gotta go away to come back. <laughs> sure. We haven't done one of these in a while. It has been a while. I've missed you. So should people think that, that you and I have not seen each other in this whole... Uh, period without him talks as the people have been clamoring for him talks should they assume that you and I just haven't been talking about hymns or anything else that we like to talk about I think they should think uh, that Zach and Alex are so important and so crazy busy that they don't have time for a piddly little that podcast might, like might, this that might be true of you I, I've been doing a whole lot of nothing <laughs> I, I know you've got a lot on your plate brother but but uh I, I've been waiting for this, and so I'm so glad to be back here uh, talking about hymns with you. Yeah, well, we're here to, uh, though we are unimportant, we're here to talk about an important topic, and that is uh, the role of Jesus as king. Uh, you can say Jesus and his kingship, Jesus and his uh, title as king, his work as king, and the place of his uh, kingship in uh, hymnody. So, Alex, something that makes me think about this subject, uh, it's common to hear preachers present Jesus as a person who sinners need both as Savior and Lord of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So, unless you repent, unless you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord of your life, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll never go to heaven uh, or you'll never be saved. Would you quibble with that or would you agree with that? I I, I don't think I quibble much with it uh, unless people are trying to break up the various functions Jesus can and might play in your life. So so if people are trying to say, as I often will hear people say, well, that's when Jesus became my Savior, um, but at a later date, he became my Lord or something like that, as if we can divide the person of Jesus and his various offices and functions um, uh, if, if that's the way, if that's something that's being done when we use that kind of language, well, then I, I quibble with it. But no, I think if someone is saying, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, they're trying to emphasize two particular functions that he plays. Savior in the sense that he saved me from my sins and cleansed me from 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 the, the filth of my unrighteousness, my, my sins and my failures. And he's the Lord of my life in that I follow him. Hmm. And uh, he's my master, you know, Lord, master in... Greek are coming from the same Greek word. Um, and so I, I think it is important in our donation to, to make that point. It's not just that Jesus saves, it's that we follow Jesus as the teacher, as the master, as the Lord. And um, indeed, you cannot be saved without, of course, embracing so, Jesus So you're, as Lord. you're saying Jesus cannot be my savior and not be my king and not be my Lord? Uh, yes, I'm saying those things. Because in order to be saved at all, you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Uh, in fact, Romans uh, 10.9, I believe it is, makes it uh, clear, doesn't it, that, that you must you confess that, Je- that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's a, a, a shallow profession to say, well, I believe that Jesus can save me from my sins. But I haven't embraced him as the king. I haven't mm-hmm. embraced him as the Lord. Well, if you haven't embraced him as king and Lord, you haven't embraced Jesus at all. And a Jesus who's not king and Lord overall is not a Jesus who's powerful to save. Well, if what we're saying is true, then, then there is an epidemic 
of impoverished Christology on our hands that we have mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was a, a teenager, it was my first job, and I remember my boss saying, oh yeah, this is when you know I was saved when I was nine years old, but it wasn't until you know after I had um, uh, you know had some crazy years in college, after I had a few kids, mm-hmm. it was until I was twenty nine mm-hmm. when I made Jesus Lord of my life. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to hear things not like at that. All. Can you think of maybe historically or maybe culturally why is that so common in our day? Hmm. I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I, it's definitely common. Um, I'll just say as pastor here in our church in Winston-Salem. It's not uncommon for you to hear that in a membership interview or something like that. Uh, I, I will frequently uh, bring this point up in my sermons, that that way of thinking is faulty. It's uninformed by what true conversion is and what true salvation is and what it really means to follow Jesus and to become his disciple. Um, I think in the American context, you had things like the carnal Christian doctrine that was developed, I don't know, maybe in the 70s or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and and it was uh, it's uh, I guess a long story to explain how that doctrine emerged, but would would safeguard the idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but you've not quite graduated to full following Jesus, and you might be living in a carnal way, but and that that's possible to live you know out from under the lordship of Jesus, um, or to live in a way that doesn't reflect that you're living under the lordship of Jesus. Uh, I just think it's the fruit of uh, lots of consumeristic and pragmatic churches and evangelistic strategies making accommodation for people who live like the world but want to maintain that because they made a quote-unquote decision at some point in their life that's sufficient enough for them to be saved so um, i'd have to think more and reflect on it more historically but i'm assuming pragmatism and faulty evangelistic practices are behind a lot of this so if jesus is lord of my life if he sits as king on the throne of my heart uh, does that mean I follow him perfectly? No, not at all. Yeah, it, it would mean that you. So, what are we trying to emphasize then, if we talk about Jesus as King? Well, both the, biblically and in Christian experience. Yeah, the main thing we're emphasizing biblically is that he is the Son of David, who comes as the promised King to reign over uh, the house of his father David for all eternity. Second Samuel seven. That's the covenant that God made with David that one of his sons would come, and subsequent New, uh, Old Testament writers reflect on that promise. Old Testament is bursting with expectation, especially the prophet Isaiah, that there's this king coming, and he will be David's greater son, reign on David's throne forever. So so you're getting, I mean, he's, he's the Christ. He's the Lord's anointed. And um, if, if he's not that, then he's not anything. He's not, he's not our savior. He's hmm. not who he said he was. So massive redemptive historical implications in believing that Jesus is king. In terms of our experience, again, massive implications. It means we submit our lives to him. It means that we live for his glory and for his rule and under his rule, uh, that we're to follow his precepts, that we're to live according to the ethics of his kingdom, that we're to uh, seek to endeavor with his help to model that kingdom to the surrounding world and to bring others into that kingdom. And we will be under his lordship and rule all the days of our lives. So massive implications for our Christian lives, our obedience, our sanctification, the way in which we live. What emotions do you think the idea of Christ as king should evoke in the Christian? Uh, a sense of privilege to be um, under the rule of such a king. 
a sense of loyalty and devotion, um, a, a rightful sort of pride in who he is, and to march under his banner and to be devoted to him, uh, a sense of joy in the triumph of our king and being identified with him, um, a sense of the gravity of the authority and the immensity of the power that, that he, he yields. I don't know, those are some things that come immediately to my mind. What would you say? Yeah, I think uh, it, it becomes most acute in my mind when I think of um, Christ's identity as king paired with his other identities. Not mm. that Christ is divided, but... Uh, Are you G- thinking like G- in various offices? Like I know Calvin talked about the the, the, the the threefold office of the Lord as prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, I think uh, I think of Christ as shepherd. Mm. The fact that he intimately loves and woos his sheep. He cares for them. He he uh, desires to keep them safely intact mm. and together. Uh, the fact that this Jesus, who is transcendent, that is the long-forward Messiah, that is the great David's greater son, that he's the anointed holy one of Israel, that that transcendent, magnificent, mighty one mm-hmm. calls me as his own. Mm-hmm. He knows mm-hmm. my name. Mm-hmm. He calls on those who are heavy, who are, who are weak and heavy laden to come to him, mm-hmm. find fellowship and rest and healing with him. That, that it heightens my sense of privilege, mm-hmm. uh, knowing that he's not just this king that I bow to and I stand in awe and wonder towards, though I do, mm-hmm. but he's just also this king that receives me. Yes. Uh, and that just gives me a distinct sense of privilege. That's, it's captured well in that first line of, I forget the, the writer, author, the one who paraphrased Psalm 23 with the opening line, the king of love my shepherd is. Yes. That sense that... Uh, the one who is the king is also my friend, mm-hmm. and he also is the one who cares for me and uh, tends to me. And to know at the same time, you know, if, if so, so I think this goes two ways, that if, if we are tempted to have too low a view of Jesus, we have to recognize this Jesus who is our Savior, who is a friend of sinners, who welcomes us with open arms, that he is actually the king of glory. That's the title he's given. Uh, but also it's to recognize if we have... If we have a view of God that he is, or, or the Lord Jesus in particular, that he is so high, and so kingly, so awesome, how could I ever access him or be friends with him or, or know a uh, uh, walk with him, communion with him, to recognize that this one who is our king is also said to be a friend of sinners mm-hmm. and also said to be one who is a shepherd for the flock, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Mm-hmm. So it, it at the same time brings him closer to us and it also elevates him in yes. our uh, esteem for him and recognition yeah. of who he is. What do you think evangelicals tend to mm, misunderstand about Christ's kingly identity? Well, it could be what we said a moment ago, and that is that you can have Jesus as something less than king. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what it means that Jesus is king itself, uh, I think we can we would be making a mistake if we drew if we if we assumed everything that was true of earthly kings must be true of Jesus as well. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the Lord's model, uh, in terms of, of how, he, how he leads as king, uh, doesn't exclude donning the towel, taking off the outer garment, and washing the disciples' feet. It doesn't preclude Philippians 2, that he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, and he humbled himself to the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. So to think that somehow it is exclusive to kingly rule to serve and to condescend and to humble oneself, 
I think that's probably a, a misconception many can have about what it means that Jesus is the king. Mm-hmm. As the king, he also is the servant king. It's a song we sing that identifies him such, all praise to him, a newer sovereign grace song. Mm-hmm. Um, all praise to him whose love is seen in Christ the son, the servant king. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those ideas, servant king, I think to most ears in our day and age, and certainly throughout history, would seem dissonant. Yes. But in the person of Jesus, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Also, in terms of misunderstanding, not quite misunderstanding, I would add just lack of emphasis. Mm. Um, I would have to analyze our songs very closely. I think we're healthy here, but we might not be. That in our presentation of Christ in song, we're emphasizing maybe too much things like intimacy, uh, closeness. Um, I, you know, I think on one level you can't emphasize that too much, but perhaps the neglect of this this grand language that the Bible so often uses for Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think of the song we're about to talk about, "I'll hail the power of Jesus' name." That line, "I'll hail the power of Jesus' name," let angels prostrate fall. It just conjures up a scene and presentation of Jesus that I just feel in my own Christian experience, I don't meditate on enough. Mm-hmm. That maybe I just reserve for God the Father in my own mm-hmm. imagination mm-hmm. and not as much to Christ the, the servant. El- elements of transcendence. Yes. Texts that, that speak to the transcendence of God, you might more naturally associate with the Father and not with the Son. And there's a good reason for that because the Son is the only one who comes in humiliation. Yes. We speak of Jesus' humiliation. I would just add one more thing. I mean, if you're asking, like, exactly our moment now in the American evangelical context, I think the most obvious thing I could say in terms of a misunderstanding that many people make is is failing to understand that the fact that Christ is king has entailments on your life. Mm. And um, it's not just, yay, Jesus is the king. It's that he's the king. Therefore, we ought to live as though that's the reality. And of course, to those who are in Christ, it's great news that he's the king, mm-hmm. especially those who have bowed the knee and wish to follow him as king. But it is, it is horrific news mm-hmm. to those who haven't bowed the knee. Mm-hmm. And, and part of what needs to be preached in terms of Christ in his office as king is that um, the fact that he is king itself is a summons to repent yes. and to believe on him. But, and I think that's a way uh, Christ should be preached. I, yeah. I, I do love the idea. It should be asked in sermons and in evangelistic encounters. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Yeah. Um, he's the king regardless. The question is, have you bowed the knee to him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, in all the synoptics, well, and John as well, uh, Peter confesses Jesus the Christ. Uh, it's a little different in John 6. You are the Holy One of Israel. We have come to believe. But in, in Matthew 16, Mark 8, Jesus Peter professes Jesus as the Christ. And from there on out in the Gospels, it's a turning point where Jesus begins to expand the disciples' understanding of who the Christ, the King, is, uh-huh. uh, what he has come to do, and what following that Christ entails. You talk about response. Uh, and then at the end, I think so often of Luke's Gospel, uh, where Jesus in Luke 24, he opens up the disciples' mind to understand uh, the scriptures. And it says it says a few things. It says that the Christ was appointed to die, mm-hmm. that the Christ was appointed to rise, and that forgiveness in his name mm-hmm. should be preached to the nations, mm-hmm. beginning with Jerusalem, mm-hmm. to all the world, beginning with Jerusalem. But this idea of, hey, not only is it 
materially true that Jesus is king and that the king died and the king rose, but this has a bearing on your life and it necessitates a response. uh, You can't be indifferent to the rule of Jesus. You cannot, yeah. 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 Uh, So for, for, for many that is a message of condemnation and thank god for many that is a message of of repentance Mm -hmm. and forgiveness Mm -hmm. and life in him Mm -hmm. any other thoughts before we go to the hymn of this podcast no let's do it okay so we have selected all hail the power of jesus name as uh the hymn for this episode and this is a hymn written by uh, an Edward, I'll say, Perone. Is it's it's spelled P-E-R-R-O-N-E-T. He's a man from French Huguenot extraction, um, but I think he, he was born and raised in England. His dates are 1726 to 1792, and uh, this hymn was probably written in 1779. And uh, Edward, Edward uh, Perone, and I'll refer to him the rest of this podcast as Edward, uh, he was an evangelical Anglican uh, who com- who did uh, ministry with uh, the Wesleys. Uh, John Wesley at one time, uh, to, to get an idea for, for Wesley's impression of him and his relationship with him, Wesley actually records a, an account of, uh, he's speaking of Methodists, and refers to Edward as being thrown down and rolled in the mud and mire. He had been persecuted and beat up for his evangelical convictions, maybe what some people would refer to as enthusiasm in his day. But apparently John Wesley and Edward, they they kind of fell out of favor eventually down the road uh, due to how to uh, take the Lord's Supper in in the context of the church. But it was Wesley who kind of got Edward involved in preaching. There's a funny account in in Edward's life where they're at this gathering and Wesley invites him to get on the stage to preach spontaneously. And uh, Edward gets up on the stage and says, all right, I'm going to preach to you the greatest sermon you've ever heard. And he reads to them Matthew 5 Mm. through 7. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He reads to them the the Sermon on the Mount. Edward would eventually uh, leave the Church of England and pastor a dissenting congregation in Canterbury. That would have been, I believe, in the 1780s, and it's in the 1780s and 1790s uh, where you would have been seeing many Methodists leave the Church of England uh, in that time period uh, to shepherd their own dissenting congregations. And he would uh, shepherd in Canterbury till the day he died. And he left his fortune, to my knowledge, I, I'm not sure if Edward was ever married or had children, he, but he left his fortune to an Oliver Holden, who actually wrote the tune for the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. He, he himself was an organist. Uh, there's an excerpt from a book on this uh, that includes a, uh, this hymn by Robert Morgan uh, on the world's greatest hymn that I wanted to read to you. And uh, what what the author Morgan emphasizes about All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name is how this hymn sort of, it took on a an identity of its own, uh, particularly in terms of uh, being a missionary hymn. So he refers to uh, an E.P. Scott, who was a missionary in India, and Morgan records, he, he says, he wrote of, a tri- of trying to reach a savage tribe in the Indian subcontinent, Ignoring the pleadings of his friends, he set off into the dangerous territory. Several days later, he met a large party of warriors who surrounded him, their spears pointed at his heart. Expecting to die at any moment, Scott, this Indian missionary, he took out his violin, breathed the prayer, closed his eyes, and began singing, All Hail the Power mm. of Jesus' Name. When he reached the words, Let every kindred, every tribe, he opened his eyes. There stood the warriors, some in tears, every spear lowered 
Scott spent the next two years evangelizing the tribe. Hmm. I so hope this actually happened. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but That's an awesome story. It, it just shows uh, at least in uh, the evangelical imagination, this hymn took on a uh, evangelistic uh, missions uh, flavor. Hmm. I could not find a point in this hymn's history where it wasn't sung. So it, it was made pos, uh, popular first in 1780 in the Gospel Magazine, which was an evangelical uh, periodical. And uh, if you look at the hymns, how many hymnals published this hymn in the last 200 years, it's never fallen out of favor. It's wow. always been sung, and probably most popularly, uh, maybe in the 17 in the 1980s, and then even recently in like the 2010s. So what I discovered though this week, uh, Alex, you familiar with John Rippon? I am. He pastored uh, uh, the New Park Street uh, Chapel uh, about two decades before Spurgeon got there and became the pastor of that church, changed its name to the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. Yeah, so just a... a I've been to his grave, a, a legend in uh, Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist history. Well, John Rippon, for reasons I don't know exactly, but he, he took all, all Hail the Power of Jesus' name and he edited it in uh, 1787 and republished it in his church's hymnal, which was saying a lot because the hymnal would have been mostly Isaac Watts' hymns. Uh, so for him to include this hymn by this this Anglican Methodist brother, uh, it would have meant a lot. But the the version we're familiar with most in our day, usually the first two verses are ones written by Edward, and then the next verses are verses written by uh, John Rippon. If I'm not mistaken, when I was a kid, I sung this song, and there were like six or seven verses in the hymnal we sung it in. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I, but... But I, I know that the typical four verses that you're talking about, but I think there were there were more. I'm not sure about that. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read the first verse. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Then it repeats, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Uh, a lot of you know, words like prostrate, the diadem, stem of Jesse's rod. Mm. Uh, Alex, there's a lot of regal and and royal imagery used in this hymn uh, that I think evoke a sense of highest praise to God. Uh, what do you like about this hymn? Well, I, I love the words. I love the awareness of Old Testament language that was used, that was forward-looking to the coming king, and then uh, how the hymn recognizes that in the person of Jesus and how he, who he is to the world today in light of the fact that he is uh, the king overall. And it's just an anthem. I mean, we just sung this at our church this past Sunday, and um, we sung it a cappella, and it was just glorious. We sang, there's actually a couple tunes I'm aware of, both I love. One is especially good a cappella. So there's the, the older, well, I don't actually know which one's, which one's uh, uh, um, uh, older in terms of age, but there's one that's more traditional which involves some harmonies and things like that. Uh, that's all. Hail the power of Jesus' yes. name, um, which is a beautiful tune, And but it's it's a little challenging to sing at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but gorgeous if you can get everybody singing parts on that song. The tune we did was the all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, which is so good a cappella. But both both tunes are fantastic, though. So I love the words of the song. I love those two tunes um, because I think they capture so well the the, um, the regal uh, ethos of the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Alice, what would you say your favorite line in this hymn is? Uh, probably the last one. Uh, oh, that with... Uh, oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Uh, because that is the end for which the world exists. It's the end for which you and I exist. All of eternity is bending toward that song at the end of all things where we will crown him Lord of all. And I love the idea of being swept up with the multitudes from every tribe, town, people, and nation um, at the last day. It's what I live for. It's what I breathe for. Um, my life is pointless without it. And so, so I just love any hymn that's going to give me an opportunity to meditate on mm. that day, that moment, that scene, because it, it, at the end of the day, is the only thing that matters. Yeah. The Creed says, uh, he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. Amen. And we look forward to the resurrection Amen. and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, friends, with that, we're out of time. Alex, thank you for your time. Thanks, brother. <laughs>